In the 1960s, advertising agencies were high-dollar creative producers. A client would come to an ad agency and pay millions of dollars for artistic messaging that would convince a consumer to buy a product. How could you measure the success of these advertising campaigns? Well, maybe you could see success in the sales data. Maybe people were starting to talk about the product. Ultimately, success was defined by how satisfied the client was. When it comes to measuring outcomes, advertising has always been a messy business. Bob Hoffman's long career in advertising included three CEO positions at different agencies. He helped huge brands craft their messaging and grab consumer attention. In Bob's world of advertising, lots of money was spent on creativity. Were the campaigns successful? That depends on who you ask. In the old world of advertising, everyone acknowledged that success was somewhat subjective. As human attention moved online, the world of advertising changed. Advertising began to move from TV and magazines to websites. Technology companies were formed to enable this new type of advertising, known as ad tech. These companies claimed to bring scientific accuracy to advertising campaigns. The biggest ad tech player is Google, who perfected search advertising. If you could imagine the opposite of what Bob Hoffman built his career doing, it might look like search advertising. Bob's campaigns were about creating a brand's voice with colorful art and subtlety and ambient messaging. Advertising was about turning a brand into an entity that you recognize, teaching the consumer to associate Nike with fitness, or Dove soap with clean hands, or Cheetos with cheesy, salty attitude. Search advertising, on the other hand, is just text. You enter a search query, you're looking for some black socks, and the top link that comes back is a line of text that says, cheap black socks, you can put these on before your shoes. Search advertising catches people who have an intent to do something. They have stated their intent by typing into a box. With search advertising, a brand might e not even need a sexy, flashy piece of creative. The idea of intent-based advertising was expanded with retargeting. As you navigate through the internet, ad tech companies are watching you. They're gathering data on your intent. Maybe you aren't typing your desires explicitly into a single search box, but you're clicking on articles and blog posts and tweets. With all your online interactions, ad tech companies can figure out that you are looking for black socks, whether you say so explicitly or not. Money poured into ad tech for very good reasons. Intent-based marketing works. The shift to ad tech put agencies in an uncomfortable position. If they couldn't capture the advertising market by selling highly produced, unmeasurable creativity, they would have to make their money doing something else. So the situation was this. Big brands like Procter & Gamble were buying most of their advertising through agencies. Procter & Gamble decided it wanted digital advertising. The ad tech companies were the ones who knew how to produce and distribute that digital advertising. Since agencies had the relationships with the big brands and ad tech companies had the technology, agencies began to partner with ad tech companies. And this was something of an unholy alliance. 
This is actually a simplified version of what happens. In, in reality, agencies subcontract advertising deals to digital agencies, and a digital agency buys technology from a slew of ad tech companies. Some technology tracks users around the internet, some technology places bids on advertising spots that will land in front of users, and because of all the middlemen, the incentives are aligned against the brands. Contrast this world of agencies and ad tech companies with the world of Google and Facebook. You might start to understand this is why Google and Facebook are a, quote, duopoly, because they earned that position. By creating a single monolithic purchasing process, they removed much of the risk that comes from a purchasing process that's stocked with middlemen. If you imagine the government contracting and subcontracting process with all of the fraud and scandal that goes on there, that's somewhat like the agency and ad tech company buying process. And if you contrast that with Google and Facebook, where it's just you're buying from a single vendor and it's Google all the way down, it's kind of a better process for you as an advertiser. But back to Bob Hoffman. As money poured into ad tech and user tracking and Google... Brands started to care more about metrics. When Bob met with a brand, the brand wouldn't be asking about the cool new advertising campaign featuring a young actress drinking a Coca-Cola. The brand would be asking about the click-through rate of a digital display advertising campaign. Brands moved their focus to statistics and away from creativity, and technology companies were happy to provide them with statistics. Whether those statistics were true or not is another story altogether. The industry was moving from creative BS to outright lying, and Bob decided to leave. In today's episode, Bob explains how the state of advertising has become so problematic and the ways in which it harms us as internet users. We've done lots of reporting about advertising fraud for the last year, and it's a popular topic because people are often shocked to find that online advertising is inextricably linked to organized crime and surveillance and Twitter botnets. That's not to say that online advertising doesn't work. It certainly does. Online advertising facilitates commerce. But understanding the dark underbelly of the internet's cash cow is a necessary precondition to finding solutions to some of the problems in online advertising. To find all of our old episodes about fraud and ad fraud, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android. What's special about these apps is that they have all of our old episodes, not just a limited subset like you will find in the iTunes store or on other podcast players. With these apps, we're building a new way to consume content about software engineering, and they're open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open-source project to hack on, we would love to get your help. With that, let's get to this episode with Bob Hoffman. At Software Engineering Daily, we need to keep our metrics reliable. If a botnet started listening to all of our episodes and we had nothing to stop it, our statistics would be corrupted. We would have no way to know whether a listen came from a bot or a real user. And that's why we use Encapsula, to stop attackers and improve performance. When a listener makes a request to play an episode of Software Engineering Daily, 
Encapsula checks that request before it reaches our servers, and it filters the bot traffic, preventing it from ever reaching us. Botnets and DDoS attacks are not just a threat to podcasts. They can impact your application, too. Encapsula can protect API servers and microservices from responding to unwanted requests. To try Encapsula for yourself, go to Encapsula.com slash 2017podcasts and get a free enterprise trial of Encapsula. Encapsula's API gives you control over the security and performance of your application, and that's true whether you have a complex microservices architecture or a WordPress site, like Software Engineering Daily. Encapsula has a global network of over 30 data centers that optimize routing and cache your content. The same network of data centers are filtering your content for attackers, and they're operating as a CDN, and they're speeding up your application. They're doing all of this for you, and you can try it today for free by going to Encapsula.com slash 2017podcasts, and you can get that free enterprise trial of Encapsula. That's Encapsula.com slash 2017podcasts to check it out. Thanks again, Encapsula. Bob Hoffman is the author of the new book, Bad Men. He is formerly the CEO of three different ad agencies. He's written a lot about online advertising, real-world advertising. You've been on the show before. Bob, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's very nice to be here again. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed Bad Men. It was a quick, highly informative read about the modern advertising industry. You call it surveillance marketing in some contexts. Well, I'm but, very glad to hear that you enjoyed it. That's great. Yeah, it, it was great. I, I was uh, taking notes the whole time in, in the book. And So let's give people a little bit of background on who you are. Okay. The, there's a quote from the book, the advertising industry is world famous for BS, but BS is different than lying. Describe the context in which you realized that you had to leave the advertising industry because there was some lying going on in excess of the BS. Yeah. So I was CEO of an ad agency, and as online advertising became more and more prominent, and as it became more and more a staple of what my clients wanted to do, I found myself not really telling the truth, hiding some things from them. And it came to a head one day when we were doing a review on a display advertising campaign that we had done. And we're going through the results and the metrics. And the, we had the click-through rate. And uh, we, the click-through rate went up on the PowerPoint, and it was 0.02. And we click, quickly moved on to the next slide, and the client said, hey, can you back up for a second? And we backed up to the uh, click-through rate, and we all held our breath. And the client said, 0.02%. He said, 0.02. Hmm, 2%. That's not bad. And instead of saying 0.02 is not 2%, it's two-tenths of, it's, it's two -tenths of 1%. It's not two clicks in 100. It's two clicks in 10,000. Right. Instead of saying that, we just moved on to the next slide. And I realized at that moment that I had become a liar. 
just like so many of what I felt with the online ad hustlers had, had lied to me as an agency head, I was now lying to my client. And maybe it wasn't a lie of commission, it was a lie of omission, but still it was a lie. And at that point I said to myself, you know what, you know, I'm used to bullshit in the advertising business, but I'm not used to lying. And th this is the time for me. First of all, I'm old enough. Second of all, I've done everything I can do. And third of all, I don't want to get into this mess of lying and non-transparency. And it's time for me to start thinking about getting out. And that's when I knew I, I had to leave. That numerical discrepancy that you describe yeah. is representative of so much of what goes on in the interaction between agencies and brands. They create an opaque process. Yes. It's it, it's it's opaque. You you are General Mills or GM or Unilever and you go to some ad agency and you say, I want to buy the online stuff and they're like, Great, how much you want to spend? Right. You know, and you <laughs> and you take their money and then you give them some report that says all right, you you bought online ads. Congratulations. Congratulations. And the, and the, You're so and, hip. You're online. Right. Exactly. And, and it's 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 sad. And, and you know, one of the reasons that online advertising I think has been so successful is that it is so opaque. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. Maybe there are 10 people in the world who really understand what the hell is going on? There's so much fraud. There's so much deception. There are so many phony metrics that it's opaque. And because it's opaque, it's been one of, that's one of the reasons it's been so successful, because nobody can really figure out what the hell's going on. Certainly, but there has always been opacity. And listeners who know I have reported on advertising fraud so much, they know my position on online ad fraud. But You've, you were in the industry for a long time where there was, like you said, BS. So what's the difference between BS and fraud? If I sell a commercial, if, if instead Budweiser comes to me and says, I want to buy an awesome commercial, and you're an ad agency and you say, okay, here's our plan. We've got this new animatronic technology. We can make these frogs talk about Budweiser and they're going to say Bud Wiser, and then we're going to air it on the Super Bowl. It's only going to cost you nine million dollars. <laughs> Let's do it. And and you know if if the if Budweiser were to say, okay, cool, how are we going to measure it? The agency would say, well, we have no idea. How would you know? What would, that's not what we do. Yeah. So how is that? How is that different than lying? How is it, selling that different than lying? It's very different because if I'm Budweiser, I can see my ad running on the Super Bowl. I know that it's actually run. If I'm buying online advertising, 50% of it is never viewed by a human being. It, it essentially doesn't exist. It's either running below the fold, or it's not loading on time, or it's one pixel being stuffed into, in, into a frame, and it's not a real ad, or it's not really running on a website. When I buy an ad in the New York Times, when I buy an ad on the Super Bowl, I can see it. I can go and make sure it's run. When I'm buying online advertising, I'm not buying a publication. I'm not buying a show. I'm buying a type of person. 
when I'm buying programmatic online and I have no idea where that is going to run. I have no idea if it has actually run. I get a report, but so much that of what I get in the report is fraudulent. We know that. And that's the difference between lying and bullshit. When I'm saying when when I'm talking about bullshit in advertising, I'm not talking about lying about whether stuff actually runs or not. I'm not talking about how many people actually see the ad or not. That is that's all measured. We have we have generally accepted methods for measuring that stuff. In the online world, we don't. In the Facebook and Google do not will not comply with the with the normally standard metrics and auditing processes that have been gone on for that have gone on for decades and mm-hmm. and and Facebook and Google may be the most reliable the, the other people you you have no if you're buying programmatically you have no idea what you're buying or where you're buying it and mm-hmm. the bullshit that goes on in the agency business is mostly qualitative bullshit it's not quantitative bullshit you know what I'm saying? So, so you know, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bullshit about how powerful this ad is gonna be, and you know how you know people are gonna love it, and everyone's gonna, and that's qualitative stuff. It's not quantitative bullshit because mm-hmm. quantitatively, when you run a TV spot, when you run a print ad, you know how many the measurements, the Nielsen's, and and those kind of measurements are not perfect. They are they're flawed. All you know, all research is flawed to some degree, but it's not. But online metrics are like way, way different and way, way flawed. DigitalOcean Spaces gives you simple object storage with a beautiful user interface. You need an easy way to host objects like images and videos. Your users need to upload objects like PDFs and music files. DigitalOcean built Spaces because every application uses object storage. Spaces simplifies object storage with automatic scalability, reliability, and low cost. But the user interface takes it over the top. I've built a lot of web applications, and I always use some kind of object storage. The other object storage dashboards that I've used are confusing. They're painful and they feel like they were built 10 years ago. DigitalOcean Spaces is modern object storage with a modern UI that you will love to use. It's like the UI for Dropbox, but with the pricing of a raw object storage. I almost want to use it like a consumer product. To try DigitalOcean Spaces, go to do.co slash sedaily and get two months of Spaces plus a $10 credit to use on any other DigitalOcean products. You get this credit even if you have been with DigitalOcean for a while. You can spend it on spaces or you can spend it on anything else in DigitalOcean. And it's a nice added bonus just for trying out spaces. The pricing is simple. $5 per month, which includes 250 gigabytes of storage and 1 terabyte of outbound bandwidth. There are no costs per request and additional storage is priced at the lowest rate available. Just a cent per gigabyte transferred and two cents per gigabyte stored. There won't be any surprises on your bill. DigitalOcean simplifies the cloud. They look for every opportunity to remove friction from a developer's experience. 
I'm already using DigitalOcean Spaces to host music and video files for a product that I'm building, and I love it. I think you will too. Check it out at do.co slash sedaily and get that free $10 credit in addition to two months of Spaces for free. That's do.co slash sedaily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Badman, the title refers yeah. to a play on Mad Men, which yes. is a show about uh, is a show about the ad agencies in I think the fifties and the sixties. Sixties, yeah. Sixties, okay. And these ad agencies that were established around then, I yeah. think I don't know my history too well. Yeah. Many of them are still around or in different forms. They've conglomeratized and yes. re- reformed. Yeah. They have been perverted by the shift to online. You have borne witness to some of that shift and that perversion. Yeah. How did you see because I and I think by the way, a lot of the listeners have no idea how at the added industry works from an right. agency perspective. They don't know where an agency fits in yeah. to the buying process and to the to the mechanics of purchasing online advertising. Maybe you could yeah. give us a brief history of what ad, ad agencies used to do and what when they became bad. Okay, the the, the title "Bad Men." Let, let me first clarify that that's not about the advertising industry per se. To me, Bad Men is about what is happening with online tracking and surveillance marketing and ad tech. That, that's the bad part of Bad Men to me. And, that, okay. and the essence of the book is about how dangerous online tracking is, surveillance marketing is, and ad tech is. That it's dangerous for us as individuals, as private citizens, and it's also dangerous for us as a society. We, we were taught that totalitarian governments are bad, and they're bad because they know what we're doing, they know who we talk to, they know what we talk about, they, had, they have secret files on us that are dangerous to us because we have no idea what's in those files and they, and they affect our lives in ways that we don't know about. We know that about totalitarian governments and how bad they are. Well, that kind of stuff is happening now, but it's not governments. It's marketers. It's marketers who know who we're talking to, where we're going, what we're doing all the time, that have secret files on us about what our beliefs are that and we don't know what what's in these secret files and we don't know who they're selling it to and we don't know how they're using these files and it's very dangerous and I don't believe marketers should have this personal private information on us and that's where to answer your question that's where I think the advertising industry went bad we used to buy media based on demographics, on, on types of people. So for example, if we wanted to, if we wanted to sell Coca-Cola, we would buy, uh, let's do beer. Beer is a better example. If we wanted to sell beer, we would buy Monday night football. We'd buy advertising on Monday night football. And we would reach a lot of guys who were of young beer drinking age. So we bought marketing based on general demographics. And it made sense, right? That makes sense to you, does it not? That we mm-hmm. should buy 
if you're a beer marketer, if you're a beer advertiser, you're going to buy something like Monday Night Food. That's where you're going to find a lot of guys who drink beer. Okay. Now we don't buy media like that anymore online, at least. Now we know what individuals are doing every minute. We know who their friends are, how they talk. We, we buy them as individuals. We follow them as individuals. So, for example, if you saw 60 Minutes last weekend, they had the guy who was Trump's Facebook guru on the election, and he would, he would find people who were vulnerable to certain kinds of messages who are vulnerable to the certain political points of view. He might find five people or 10 people or 15 people and send them specific ads based on information he had collected about those individuals and influence them in ways that I think advertising should never have been built to influence. And a perfect example of this is a company called Cambridge Analytica. It's a, it's a British research company. They claim to have files on every adult in America with four to 5,000 data points on every adult in America, 230 million people. This is frightening. This is beyond frightening. This is Orwellian and scary and should not be allowed to exist. I don't want some company that I've never even heard of to have a file on me with four or 5,000 data points about my behavior, who I talk to, what I talk about. It's inappropriate and we need to do something about it. Hmm. So you think there should be some sort of legislative effort or... Ideally... Uh... Yeah, ideally, no. Ideally, the advertising and marketing industries would be mature enough to regulate themselves, to self-regulate, and to realize that this is dangerous and they shouldn't mm. be doing this. However, it'll never happen in a million years. For mm. Facebook and Google make billions of dollars every year based on the data they have on us. That mm. is their leverage. What is happening, there's a fellow named Don Marty, who's a very smart guy. He says online advertising success and business success in online marketing is simply a hacking contest. The people who can get the most information on the most people are going to win. And uh, regardless of how they get that information. And that's what Google and Facebook have done. They have enormous amounts of information about individuals, about each of us, and, and they're making billions of dollars on it. And consequently, they will never yield on supporting ad tech, on supporting spyware, on supporting surveillance marketing. They won't. Hmm. They all fight like hell for it. And consequently, I believe the only way we can get around this is through government regulation. Now, I'm not okay, a big okay. fan of government regulation, but in this case, I think it's necessary. Okay. You've outlined some strong points that are against surveillance marketing. Let me take the devil's advocate position. I used to play online poker a lot, and when I played online poker, there was a revolution in data science in online poker. You had people that would 
aggregate the historical playing patterns of everybody who played poker. And the initial result of the, 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 the initial result of this was that the people who were aggregating the data became much better players. Over time, what happened was the ab- ability to aggregate data and make more educated decisions about you know what your opponent is holding and uh, you know what kind of bet you should make to extract the most value out of a situation. Over time, it made the game of poker more efficient. The players became more tough, and deci- overall quality of decision making was improved. So, what if Today, we are just going through a speed bump where people are starting to wake up that there is this market for getting knowledge in front of people, and it is being used in somewhat lopsided ways. But over time, you can imagine a free market for getting information in front of people. You know, is there really anything wrong with that? Is, is, could it potentially make us as a society more efficient? No, it can. Uh, I think it's a false analogy. It can make marketing more efficient, but we are not a society that's in business to make marketing more efficient. Part of part of the part of the essence of democracy and and free societies is that we are entitled to privacy, that we are entitled to not have information about us collected by people we don't know and sold by people we don't know and exploited by people we don't know. We're, we're not here as a society for the convenience of the marketing industry. There are a lot bigger issues than that. Now, now can data collection make marketing more efficient? Sure it can. That's, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to using data to make marketing more efficient. What I am opposed to is the sneaky collection of data by people we don't know without our specific, without our specific permission hmm. and collected in ways that are very, very dangerous, that we have no control over, and that we can't do anything about. And, hmm. it's, and it's our privacy and our security that are at risk. And, you know, we're fairly lucky now. We have governments you know, at least in the Western world, that are mostly not too oppressive. But get an oppressive government in place with access to all this information about us as individuals, and in about three weeks, it's a Nazi regime or a communist regime. It doesn't take very long for for malefactors to take this information about us that they have no right to have and use it in bad ways. Mm. There are these different players in the ecosystem. You've got the ad agencies that we've already explored. You've got Google and Facebook, which are, some people argue, a duopoly. We'll go into Google and Facebook. But there's also these people that you've never heard of, the surveillance middlemen that are brokers of information so these are the bad men, or do you consider Google and Facebook to be in the category of bad men as well? You know, I, I don't like to point out any individual <laughs> okay. as, as a bad man. It, it's the whole idea. Look, Facebook and Google are fantastic companies. They're, right. They have brilliant people. They do amazing things. 
Yeah. But. And that, I, sh- I should point out, I, get, I give them a hard time as well, but I love Google and Facebook. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of those the, companies. They, they are, there's no question that they're great companies. The problem is, down in the basement, there's a dungeon. And the dungeon is, is collecting information about people that they shouldn't have, that they're not entitled to. And and that we need to do something about. So so there's a dirty little secret down there underpinning a lot of their money making capability. Mm-hmm. Now, as you say, there there are lots of companies between advertisers and consumers. Advertisers are trying to get messages to consumers, and there are companies in between that are. If you've ever seen, I'm sure you've seen the Loom Escape. Uh, uh, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's insane. That's in your book. Yeah. So it's the, well, the Loom Escape. Okay. So, so let's let's try to pick this apart because yeah. uh, the, the the well the Loom Escape specifically that you're talking about is this diagram that you have in your book, which is it describes the ad the online ad buying process. Like if I if if an ad is shown to me on NewYorkTimes.com, there are like. 30 layers of middleman brokerages that help with the ad being the decision being made for that ad to target me the the exchanges the DSPs that are aggregating demand all these different players actually you know okay so we we could go we could go there but i want let, let's let's take a specific example since you were talking about the dungeons of google and facebook where they're gathering information that maybe they shouldn't have let's take a very specific example so let's say I get credit card statements, or every time there's a buying, there's a, I buy something with my American Express, an email comes into my Gmail account that says, hey, you resubscribed to Spotify, or you bought a bag of mixed nuts at Walgreens. Why shouldn't Google be able to take that information and market mixed nuts to me? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that I never gave them permission to collect information on me. That's what's wrong with it. Who gave them the right? They are now collecting information offline. They are. If I go shopping at the Gap now, they're getting information on where I shopped offline. I don't remember giving them permission to collect that information about me. I don't remember them. I don't remember giving them permission to sell that information about me to anyone since when is my private let's for example let's say this was done by an offline company let's say someone was just following me around to every store that i shopped in taking notes on what i was buying would you be happy with that is that part of a free society Mm. i don't think so but they're doing it online and we have no recourse now, we're going to have recourse because what's happening in Europe now, the, the EU, is starting to wake up to what's going on. And they are past. Can I talk about this? Please do. They are starting to wake up and they have a couple of regulations that hopefully will go into effect this May called the GDPR and the e-privacy regulation, which will make it much more difficult for online entities to collect personal, private information about us without our permission. And they're going to have to get prior 
permission from us if these regulations go into effect as they are currently configured. They're going to have to get permission from us to do so before they can collect and use information on us. And I think this is a very healthy thing. And, Mm. And once this goes into effect in the EU, I suspect... They're going to have some problem. They're going to have to iron out some of the regulations. It's not going to go smoothly at the beginning. But once they get it ironed out, and once online entities are going to be required to get permission before they can collect personal private information about us, I think that's going to spread. It's probably not going to spread in the U.S. under the current administration, but sooner or later it will. And this will make it, this will make our online behavior that is personal and private, truly personal and private. Do you want to be a detective? Do you like the idea of analyzing a large data set looking for fraud and other bad behavior? Method Media Intelligence is an investigative engineering company that helps companies understand their advertising data. Method Media Intelligence has found millions of dollars of fraud by studying the data sets of their clients. I'm good friends with Shalin Dar and Praneet Sharma, the guys who founded Method MI, and I remember talking to Shalin more than a year ago about how crazy it is that so many advertising dollars are stolen from businesses on the internet. It turns out that these businesses want to get that stolen money back, and Method Media Intelligence is looking for engineers and data scientists to help scale Method MI. If you're looking for an exciting, well-paid job in data, email jobs at methodmi.com to find out more. Shalin and Praneet are awesome guys, and if you think you might be a fit, I encourage you to send them an email, jobs at methodmi.com. Fight ad fraud and take money back from the corrupt companies who are stealing it. Check out Method Media Intelligence at methodmi.com. talk about how in this atmosphere online publishers are suffering these are the people who are putting out the great content that we consume where coincidentally (laughs) we're supposed to be consuming ads but sometimes it feels like the focus of the page is the ad rather than the article how are the online publishers suffering in this environment quality online publishers are having their the audiences that they attract stolen from them by publishers. It works like this. It's called data leakage. What happens is Bob Hoffman goes to the New York Times.com and uh, let's say it's uh, Coca Cola wants to serve me an ad at New York Times.com and I go there and they, they drop a cookie on me. And the next time they're not going to pay the New York Times a dollar to reach Bob Hoffman. Instead, they'll pay bikinibeachbabes.com a nickel to reach Bob Hoffman because they can follow me to a website. So what's happening is the quality publishers are losing their audiences to publishers. And that's why they're having so much trouble staying in business. They're having a mm. tough time making 
any money online because because the programmatic advertising systems will find the value proposition of programmatic buying is we will find you the highest quality eyeballs at the crappiest possible locations at the yeah. at, at the least expensive locations and we'll follow your we'll follow your audience to the crappy websites and serve them your ads there rather than at the high quality websites yeah you're describing a world in which the new york times shifts from a place where an advertiser wants to show an ad to the user to a place where an advertiser just wants to cookie the user so that they can follow them around and then show them an ad in a place that is lower budget. Much less expensive and much lower quality. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's what I'm describing. So who is managing that tracking and information brokerage? This is just part of the Loomscape, I suppose. This is how online advert. This this is the this is the whole basis of online advertising these days. This is what it's about. This is the value proposition of programmatic buying. It it's that you, we are no long. We advertisers are no longer buying a publication. We're buying a type of person, following that type of person everywhere they go. And serving them advertising at the cheapest possible locations to save money, and that is destroying the business opportunities for high quality public for high quality publishers. It's also an essential part of the whole fake news ecosystem, because what happens? Someone puts up a crappy website somewhere with stolen content from someone else. They, they go to social media, run some kind of clickbait headline. Online traffic follows to that crappy website. Programmatic systems see people going to that crappy website with fake news and sending advertising there and, and feeding the, those fake news sites money. It just happened. I mean, it's amazing what's been happening this week, the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, ran advertising on a site that's supposed to recognize fake news, but instead published fake news. And, and the Association of National Advertisers that's supposed to be fighting this had their advertising run there because a programmatic system sent it there and the association had to apologize for this. The whole Hmm. system is insane. Hmm. It's counterintuitive, but the people who gain the most from advertising fraud are actually not the fraudsters, but they are the marketing and advertising industry itself. We've explored ad fraud in a bunch of different episodes Uh where we talked about how many of the ads that a brand like Procter & Gamble wants to display on the internet to humans are actually getting shown to bots sitting in a data center somewhere. But we haven't explored as much why the conventional marketing and advertising industry, or maybe some of the middlemen sitting in the loom escape, yep. 
are absorbing the profits. You would expect the profits to be going to the fraudsters who are spinning up the bots in a data center. Why is it that the marketing and advertising industry, the the people who you would expect, oh, these people should be getting defrauded from the fraudsters, they actually benefit yeah. from the fraudsters. Explain why that is. That is because a lot of the fraud doesn't enter the money system until after the buying and the and and the middlemen have already taken their cut. So if you look in my book, you will see there is a chart taken from the World Federation of Advertisers that shows that about 60% of online advertising dollars, programmatically spent online advertising dollars, are taken by the middlemen. Then it get then the money gets to the publishers where the fraud occurs. So that all so the agencies, the DSPs, the middlemen have already taken their cut before a lot of the fraud occurs. Now this isn't to say that the legitimate marketing industry and that the agencies are in cahoots with fraudsters. They're not. But what it does say is they are inadvertently being getting money and getting revenue from advertisers who, in the fullness of time, will be subjected to fraud. And so who has the motivation to end ad fraud? The problem is right now, the only people with motivation to end ad fraud are Number one, the advertisers who are spending the money. And number two, the quality publishers who are getting screwed by ad fraud. The publishers can't do anything about it because nobody cares about them. They can scream all they want. Nobody gives a damn. The advertisers have the power, but so far they have been so bamboozled by the, by the crazy, opaque ways of doing stuff in in online advertising that they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to end this. The people in the middle, the agencies, the the middlemen, the everyone along the line, they have very little motivation to end fraud. If they did, if they were if if their compensation was hurt by ad fraud, they'd be doing a lot more about it than they currently are. But, you know, they throw their hands up in the air and they say, oh, you know, you know, it's just part of the act. It's part of what we have to live with. Well, that's baloney. You know, right now, I'm going to get this wrong, but according to J.P. Morgan Chase, there is going to be about, I think they said, 16 or $18 billion lost to ad fraud this year. That's over twice what happened last year. Can you imagine? It's growing by like 150% a year. I mean, the fraud is out of control. And yet... So so the the Procter & Gambles and the Fords and the Unilevers who are getting exploited the most by this, you say they really don't know what to do. Are, are they doing anything, or what, what have they tried to do? They are making a lot of noise. They're issuing press releases. Procter & Gamble has actually done some things. They, they removed between 100 and $140 million 
worth of online advertising from their, I think it was their second quarter buy this year, their second quarter media buy this year. So they've taken a lot of money out of online media this year, and actually it did them no harm at all. In fact, they grew 2% in the quarter. But it's not a concerted effort. It's not, people can't get together and decide what to do. You'd think the, the Association of National Advertisers of the World, Federation of Advertisers, would put a a strategy and a plan into place. Here's what we're all going to do to end this. As far as I can tell, they have not done that. And as a result, it continues. And and it's metastasis. It's getting worse all the time. We think that there must be someone somewhere who's in charge of this, who's looking after this ad fraud and is doing something about it. But there isn't. From what I read, there's like, uh, it's going to be something like 18 or 16 or 18 billion dollars in fraud this year. And I think uh, one of the organizations, maybe the Interactive Advertising Bureau, the IAB, has a, a, they're spending a million dollars to fight it. Can you imagine a million dollars to fight an 18 billion dollar problem? It's nothing. It's a joke. Well, because the, the IAB is a recipient of probably relationships with a lot of the people who do benefit from the ad fraud, sure right? They I mean, they're run, you know, they're, they, you know, I don't know what goes on inside the IAB, but I'll bet you it's pretty much run by Facebook and Google and Amazon. Okay. So basically we are waiting for the large brands to get their stuff together to figure this out, or perhaps on the other side of things, waiting for governments like the EU to take legislative steps. Yeah, I think there, there, there are two different issues here. First is the privacy issue and the social danger issue that needs to be addressed by government regulation because we haven't been able to do it in any other fashion. And the second issue is the waste that is going on that, that online advertisers are being subjected to by a system that is completely opaque. They have no idea what's going on. That's not a regulatory issue. That's an issue for them to deal with, for them to straighten this out and to wake up. They, you know, the advertising business used to be, we used to have some of the most cynical people in the world. If you, if you try to tell an, an advertiser that this is going to work, you better have 12 ways to prove it's going to work. And then all of a sudden, the online people came riding into town, handsome new guys with uh, pseudoscience, and and the advertising industry fell for it, like like little like schoolgirls, like uh, infatuated schoolgirls, and they stopped questioning. They dropped their skepticism, and they bought all the baloney that was being sold to them. And now they're realizing how much money is being wasted and how much money they have wasted in the last 10 years chasing fantasies. You write about agency kickbacks, and I think there's a relationship between agency kickbacks and the online advertising ecosystem. Explain what an agency kickback is and how that affects this whole ecosystem we're talking about. Okay, so... What you know, there there are several ways in which agencies were screwing their clients. One of them was kickbacks or rebates, or I, they they had another uh, euphemism for it. I forget what it was, but essentially, what would happen is this: 
I would buy, I'm an agency, you're my client. You say, Bob, buy me a million dollars worth of uh, online advertising. Buy me a million dollars worth of Facebook or something. So I go and I buy from, I buy you advertising and I get like a 2% commission on the buy. But the people I'm buying from give me a credit. They give me a 7 or an 8 or a 9% credit. So now I have 70000 or 80000 or $90,000 in credit that I, the agency, hold on to. I don't give it to you. I don't give it to my client. I hold on to it. Now someone else comes along and says, hey, Bob, buy me $80,000 worth of online advertising. And I say, sure, I will. And I go use my credits, those $80,000 worth of credits, to buy the advertising, and I put your $80,000 in my pocket. So essentially, I'm making money that really should go to the client. It's the client who should get the credit, but I'm taking it as an agency. That's one way that the kickbacks work. Another way, and uh, this isn't technically a kickback, but it is a questionable practice, was an arbitrage. So I, an agency, would go and I would buy $10 million worth of online advertising from, from you. Let's say you're Facebook. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act as a broker. I'm just going to buy $10, $10 million worth of advertising from you, Facebook. And I don't have a client yet, but over the course of the year, I will use that $10 million. Then I go and I sell your $10 million worth of advertising to my clients for $13 million. So in other words, I'm taking what I've bought from you and I'm brokering it. I'm marking it up 30% and selling it to my clients. Now, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with that. Agencies are supposed to be working in their clients' interest and getting them the best possible deals and the best possible prices, not working against their interests and buying for one and selling to them at two. That's another way agencies were were doing it. But if you really want to know what was going on, the Association of National Advertisers last July, July of 2016, did a report on agency transparency and how agencies were, and, and you can get chapter and verse on all the ways that agencies were being non-transparent in their online media deals. Now, having said that, I need to say that in that report, they said it wasn't just online media that this was going on in. It was all media. However, to me, that was just mainly baloney. If you look at the language they use in their report and you look at the examples they use in their report, you can see that it's mainly online advertising in which this was going on. What would you do if you were in charge of a brand like a Unilever or Procter & Gamble? Very hard to say. If I were buying online, I would... The, the problem, what, what they all do is they have cybersecurity firms working for them, telling them how much fraud there is in their buy and how much viewability there is in their buy. And 
these people, I, I'm sure they try their hardest, these cybersecurity firms, but they're just not reliable. If, if we have ad fraud growing by 150% in a year, uh, that just tells you that what they're doing is not being effective. The, the, the fraud is way ahead. The fraudsters are way ahead of the cybersecurity people. So what can you do as an advertiser to make sure that you're not getting screwed and you're not getting conned? It's very, very hard these days. What I would do is I would hire an independent consulting expert, not, a, not necessarily a cybersecurity firm who has skin in the game. Who, who act, you know, these people, without ad fraud, these people don't make any money. So, right. so, so in a way, while they're monitoring ad fraud, they're also making money from ad fraud. I want someone who's completely independent, who is not beholden to anyone, to be on, either on staff for me, on a consulting basis, to dig into the body. You need to be you need to be a computer scientist. You need to be a software engineer to really understand what's going on in these buys. I can't understand it. I don't think most of the people in marketing departments can understand it. It's so complex, you really need to know code to be able to see what's really going on. And it's a very difficult problem for these companies who think they need to be doing online advertising, but don't know how to keep it clean. I wish I had an, if I had the answer to that question, Jeffrey, I'd be a billionaire. How do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you keep it clean? I really don't know. I do know from a policy standpoint, we have to end tracking and we have to get some sort of handle on programmatic buying which is so dirty and there's so much of the fraud is happening in the programmatic buying area hmm. well, let's say we were able to get away from data-driven surveillance marketing let's say there was a shift away from that either because maybe you have regulation maybe you just have the big brand advertiser shifting away from it i see both of those as credible outcomes where will the excess ad dollars flow to? Well, first of all, let's be careful in our in our terminology. Data-driven advertising has always existed. Every, every you know, people who buy television, people who buy radio, people who buy magazine, billboard—it's all data-driven. It's just not. It's a different type of data. It's not private personal data. It's demographic data, which is different. Maybe I'm not expressing that in the most eloquent terms, but it's different. So the people will always use data to make media buying decisions. The way we can clean up so much of the problems in the online industry, if, we, if the media buyers were just to buy it the same way they, bought, they buy magazines and television, and not buy it based on tracking, but buy it based on other kinds of demographic data, not on tracking. If if I would buy quality publication online publications the same way I buy quality offline publications, a lot of this mess would disappear. And and that's where it needs to go. It needs to go to where this old system of data 
private data collection and programmatic by it, it it's got to go away it's it's no longer relevant it's become too corrupt and too fraudulent marketers need to to go to where they're buying online advertising from quality publications directly rather than through through these networks that are unreliable and full of fraud and and these programmatic systems that are unreliable and bring the advertising to crappy places all right you know we're we're almost at time okay what are you what are you doing de- these days like you've you've gone from you know you were ceo of three different ad agencies and you're now writing about advertising how do you spend your time i spend my time writing and speaking i write i have my blog which is called the ad contrarian i have a newsletter which i send out every sunday morning and if you're interested in reading the blog, just go to adcontrarian.com. If you're interested in getting the newsletter, you can you can go to adcontrarian.com and sign up for the newsletter there. Or you can go to my website, which is bobhoffmanswebsite.com. And then I do speaking. I, I speak all over the world, do a lot of traveling. But mainly these days, I've become kind of a, a, a complete geek about getting people to realize how dangerous the online data collection is Hmm. and how serious the surveillance marketing issue is and that Hmm. we need to really get that under control because it's just too dangerous for free societies. Uh, So that's I'm spending a lot of time talking about that and writing about it, and it's become kind of a cause celeb for me. And I'm hoping, you know, inside the beltway, inside the marketing and advertising beltway, I think this is starting to get some traction. People are starting to understand how dangerous this is. But outside of that, in the general public, I still don't think people understand. They know that when, you know, Equifax has a security breach that they're in danger, that their social security numbers are being and are hacked and they're, and they're some personal information about them. But they don't realize that advertising and marketing people are also collecting the same and even more personal information, information about their sexual habits, their, their health issues, their psychiatric problems. They're, uh, everything they talk about, every email they write is being scanned by, by the email ecosystem providers to, to, to get information about them. They don't realize this is happening, and I'm trying to make this a public issue because I think it's important. All right, Bob. Well, uh, I, I certainly believe it's important too, and that's why I love having you on the show. So it was, a, it was a pleasure having this conversation. Thanks so much. It was great to be on the show, Jeffrey. Take care of yourself. Okay. okay. All right. Simplify Continuous Delivery with GoCD, the on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery tool by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD, you can easily model complex deployment workflows using pipelines and visualize them end-to-end with the value stream map. You get complete visibility into and control over your company's deployments. At gocd.org slash sedaily, find out how to bring continuous delivery to your teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. Visit gocd.org slash sedaily to learn more about GoCD. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. 
thanks to GoCD for being a continued sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Wow. 